The sermon text for this morning is Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. I invite you to please turn there in your copy of Scripture. This morning we return to our series through uh, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. And uh, before we read our text for this morning, I want to spend just a little time reminding you of the context of these verses. You might recall that in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul began uh, teaching us the importance of church unity, that as brothers and sisters, we are the church of Christ. We are, Paul says, to have the same mind, to have the same love, to be in full accord and of one mind. That's Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. And we saw that this kind of unity... This kind of unity in which we think the same things, in which we desire the same things, we work toward the same goals, this kind of unity is achieved through humility, through looking not only to what we want, but to the needs of others in the church as well. And our greatest example of humility is the Lord Jesus Christ. We read, about this example of humility in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 6. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Now, as we consider these verses, we need to remember that humility is not having a low opinion of yourself. Uh, it's not uh, constantly putting yourself down in front of other people, telling everybody how horrible and terrible you think you are. I know we, we saw in this passage that humility is self-forgetfulness. Right? It's simply thinking about yourself less and thinking about others more, and the needs of others uh, more than your own. And that is exactly what we see in the Lord Jesus. He willingly humbled himself by veiling his divine glory in our flesh. And taking on human form, he then accomplished by that means our salvation. And that's what Paul explains in verses 5 through 8 of Philippians chapter 2. He explains the humiliation of Christ. See, that though Christ was in the form of God, he did not use his status as the second person of the Trinity to avoid serving mere creatures, to avoid serving you and me. But instead, he willingly humbled himself, and he did so from the greatest height imaginable that Christ veiled his glory, glory of the only begotten Son of God. He veiled his glory by being born in the likeness of men, by humbling himself, and by becoming obedient to the point of death, we read in Scripture, even death on a cross, the shame and the pain of a cross. Why did the Lord Jesus do all of that? He said so, he explained in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he did that because he said, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why he did it, for you and for me. Because of his obedience, even unto death, we saw in Philippians chapter 2, God exalted Jesus. He exalted Jesus by raising him from the grave, by enthroning him in heaven at his right hand. The right hand of the Father is a place of power, of dominion, of authority, and giving him the name that is above every name. So that, we see in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a marvelous explanation of Christ's humiliation and his subsequent exaltation. Doesn't your heart sing with wonder at the thought of what Christ has done for us, of how he stooped to serve you and me? And so Paul uses this extreme example of humility, this supreme example of humility, we might say, that which we find in Christ, and now he moves us toward application. Look at the therefore in verse 12. This is the application portion. So based on all that Christ has done for us and the example he is to us, Paul says, therefore work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. One of the ways that we do this, loved ones, we see in this chapter, is by not grumbling and disputing in the church. This is the direct application that flows from what Paul has explained from the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. We read this uh, teaching in verses 4 through 18. Here's our text for this morning. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul begins there with an imperative, a command. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And we are going to spend the bulk of our time this morning on this first point. The last two points are going to be fairly short. As we consider this first point, this command, what is Paul commanding here? What is Paul exhorting us to here in verse 14? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Well, uh, as was pointed out during our first reading, Paul is referring to the bad example of Israel in the wilderness. And he's calling us as a church to learn from Israel's bad example. Israel grumbled and disputed. Grumbling here in verse 14, is the Greek word gagosmos. And it sounds like the action uh, that it describes, doesn't it? It's like the word gurgle 
or mumble, right? The letters make the sound that the word is describing. And it's the same with grumbling here, gagosmos, right? This word describes kind of a, a low tone of voice kind of talk. It's discussion behind the scenes, uh, behind someone's back, we might say. Grumbling here expresses uh, discontent, complaining. Um, the idea of, of muttering, of tearing down others with words. And notice the, the second word in verse 14 is disputing. Right? Uh, this word describes a tendency to argue and to take sides, to bicker. While grumbling is behind the scenes, behind someone's back, disputing you know, is openly arguing, uh, openly uh, bicker, bickering. Grumbling and arguing are what the first generation of Israelites were guilty of after God had brought them out of Egypt. We saw in our first reading that they grumbled and they argued. Israel, we read from Exodus chapter 15, first grumbled about the fact that they didn't have water. And, you know, as we consider uh, this event from the Exodus, um, I don't want to make it sound like their plight wasn't a big deal. Right? After all, you know, we have to consider their circumstances in the wilderness. They were a huge nation of people. They had children. They had livestock. They were walking through a dry and barren wilderness. It was a very difficult situation to be without water. And then when they, they finally reached what they thought was drinkable water, you could almost imagine the sense of relief that they felt when they saw the water before them. That is until we read how they tasted the water and found it bitter. It was undrinkable. And so we read in Exodus 15, verse 24, that as a result, the people grumbled. Gagosmos, there it is again, right? Grumbled against Moses. Now, I want to ask, you know, why was their attitude such an offense to God? Well, their attitude was an offense to God because they were, in fact, grumbling against God himself. See, their discontent, their complaining, their muttering was directed ultimately toward the Lord. Moses said to them clearly in Exodus chapter 16, verse 8, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. See, rather than praying to the Lord, bringing their needs to him and, and trusting in his provision, Israel, that first generation, instead chose to express discontent, to complain, and to mutter against God. And their attitude, their attitude was also offensive to God because of how the Lord had just demonstrated to them his sovereign power and his loving kindness in bringing them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. You know, it's amazing when we read the book of Exodus, how Exodus records such a concentrated series of miracles, supernatural events, one after the other, all happening within just a very short time frame. Right? These were very public demonstrations of God's power. They were miracles for all of Egypt and Israel to see. We read in Exodus how, with one plague after another, God demonstrated his power over the mighty Egyptians. 
this powerful nation that prided itself on uh, its, its own strength. And God turned that nation into a people that were terrified of him. The plagues, they were very public demonstrations of God's mighty power, but also of his care for his people Israel, that he cared for his people, that he would hold true to the covenant that he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then after the plagues, Israel experienced God's power once again as he divided the waters of the Red Sea. They walked, we read in uh, uh, Exodus, through the Red Sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left hand. Beloved ones, do you see the disconnect in that first generation's hearts and minds as they now faced thirst in the wilderness? That their first response was to grumble and to argue with Moses, with Moses who was God's representative. See, rather than grumbling and disputing, they should have responded in faith after all that they had seen. They should have responded by saying, you know, in this, in this difficult situation, we believe that the same God who kept his covenant and who brought us mightily out of slavery and Egypt and who split the waters of the Red Sea before us, that same God will provide water when we need it. We trust him. And so as we consider... Israel's fault here, we need to see, loved ones, that it wasn't merely a matter of forgetfulness. And we see in Exodus, you know, these events are recorded so quickly, one after the other, that it's hard to say that it was just Israel forgetting, right? All of these events happened one after another to show us that it was a result of Israel's unbelief that they doubted God in the wilderness. They did not trust the Lord. They did not believe. And the unbelief in their hearts was revealed then in their attitude and in their grumbling and disputing. And then this same unbelief was later revealed when they faced another crisis. This time it was a crisis that had to do with food. Israel later complained about the lack of food during their exodus from Egypt. And again, I don't want to dismiss their plight as as no big deal. Um, hunger and thirst are the two most powerful drives that we have, among the most powerful drives that we have as human beings. And I personally have never been in a situation in which I was hungry and thirsty and wasn't sure if I would have a meal or some water at, at a certain point. I've never faced that kind of dire situation. But what the Bible tells us here. The Bible tells us how you and I should interpret Israel's response in this difficult situation. The problem was that they responded again with unbelief rather than trusting in the Lord. We read in Exodus 16, verses 2 through 3, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Loved ones, do you see how this first generation of Israel 
revealed their unbelief. They revealed their hard hearts. God later brought judgment upon them. What we see is the danger here, the danger of an attitude of grumbling and disputing and how this attitude can be infectious right, in the church. It is like a disease that spreads and that spreads quickly. One discontent church member complains to another about something in the church, and now there are two discontent church members. And, and knowing our hearts, those two discontent church members go and talk to each two more, which makes now four, and, and on it goes. It multiplies. It's like yeast that infects a whole lump. It's like an infection that spreads throughout a whole body. And such a bad attitude reveals, loved ones, what is ultimately in our hearts. As Israel revealed what was in its heart, that first generation uh, in the wilderness. The Lord Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. Our words reveal the disposition of our hearts. Some of you may be asking yourself, you know, so are we um, never allowed to voice our concerns or our complaints about problems that we see in the church? Um, Of course we are. But there is a godly biblical way of doing that. And it's not by grumbling, right? Uh, That low tone tone of voice kind of talk, that discussion behind the scenes, behind someone's back. It's not by um, grumbling and it's not by arguing, by openly disputing. The Bible gives us direction on on how this can be handled uh, in a godly way. Matthew chapter 18, it can be handled by going directly to the person with whom you have a disagreement and talking to them personally about it. Or going to the elders of of our church and and sharing your concerns and your frustrations with them. So I want to encourage you this morning, if you feel that you have fallen short in this area of grumbling and disputing, I, I want to encourage you to repent of this sinful disposition, to pray and to ask that the Lord would change your attitude, to work in your heart such that your words will be edifying to others, encouraging and exhorting others, that you will support the church in its worship and work and not seek to tear others down, not seek to tear down the church by grumbling and disputing. You know, I sometimes begin our worship service with the prayer from Psalm 19, verse 14. And I personalize it for our church. Lord, let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. I want to encourage you to perhaps make this your prayer. Lord, make my words and the desires of my heart acceptable to you. And let us all remember, loved ones, this morning that grumbling and disputing are infectious. 
So let us guard our hearts against this attitude that reveals itself so distinctly in our speech. You know, if you are friends with someone in the church that you know has this attitude and this tendency toward grumbling and disputing, I want to encourage you to bring it up to them, to talk to them about it personally. You know, they might not even be aware of how they fall short. This is because so much of our culture is characterized by grumbling and disputing. And so we are often influenced by the culture around us. You know, if we uh, look outside our church to our, our media and our sources of news, for example, they are often characterized by grumbling and disputing. It's a consistent tone that our media sets, isn't it? Everything is wrong, nothing is right, no one knows what they're doing. That's the constant refrain that we hear so often. I was uh, getting my oil changed recently, and and the TV was on in the waiting room, and uh, the show that was on, it's a popular morning show in which a group of about six people sit around every morning, and you know what they do? They grumble and dispute every morning, five days a week. I was able to handle about two minutes before I had to go outside. I was upset that I didn't have my headphones. Everything is wrong. Nothing is right. No one knows what they're doing. See, that attitude can quickly seep into our church. It could seep into our families. It could seep into our marriages, sometimes without us ever realizing it. And Paul says, Paul says in the most pastoral, loving tone he can, after speaking about Christ's humility, he says, cut it out. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. See, loved ones, we have the supreme example of Christ before us, our Lord Jesus. He did not grumble or dispute, but he, in obedience to the Father's will, he humbled himself that he might serve us. His attitude was not, why do I have to do this? Uh, What's in it for me? But it was, Father, not my will, but yours be done. His attitude was, Peter, come over here and let me wash your feet. And even when Peter put up a fight, Jesus said to him, Peter, I have to do this for you. You don't understand it now, but you soon will understand. And this is the same attitude that, loved ones, you and I are to seek after individually and as a church, humble joyful service toward one another without grumbling or disputing. Along with what we've already noted in this passage, Paul mentions now two reasons why this attitude is critical for us as a church, this joyful, humble attitude. As you see, because it affects our witness in the world. This is point two this morning. It says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. That as believers in Christ, we read here, and as the church of Christ, we are lights in this dark and fallen world. We are lights because we point people to the light of the world. 
the light, who is Jesus Christ. We do this because we believe that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by whom we must be saved. And so in this dark and fallen world, we point others to Christ. And we do so by shining the light of the gospel. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, beginning of verse 14. And he was talking here to his disciples. He said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, if our church here at Grace becomes divided because of internal strife, because of grumbling and arguing, it will negatively affect our witness here in Southern California. Just like the church in Philippi was a gospel beacon in that part of the Roman Empire, we are a gospel beacon here in Southern California. And the more we are united as a church, the more effective we will be, loved ones, in continuing our gospel ministry and showing forth the light of Christ and fulfilling the great commission that Christ has given us. And secondly, we see it's critical that we do all things without grumbling and complaining as a church because we know what pleases God. Now, in the last two verses of our passage, Paul ends on a personal note. He urges here the Philippians toward unity and gospel commitment. He says, so that on the day of Christ's return, he will be proud, Paul will be proud, that he did not run the race in vain and that his work was not useless. Now, to understand what Paul is getting at here, we need to remember his connection with this church. This church in Philippi began, as is described in Acts chapter 16, when Paul was called to Macedonia by a man who appeared to him in a vision. And when Paul arrived in Philippi, which was a leading city in Macedonia, we read in Acts 16 how he and some others began to share the gospel with some women who had gathered by the riverbank. And we read that one of those women was named Lydia, and the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. This is the description of the effectual call, that God, by his Holy Spirit, sovereignly worked in Lydia's heart and granted her saving faith. We read about how she and her whole household then were subsequently baptized. But Lydia, we know... And her whole household were not the only Christian converts in Philippi because in Acts 16, uh, we continue to read about uh, the Philippian jailer who came to faith and how he and his whole household were also baptized. Paul, this group of people, started this church. After a time, he left them to continue on his missionary journey. And so when he later wrote this letter of Philippians to them, You know, he was writing to them not just as a distant apostle, not as a stranger, but he was writing to them as their pastor, as as one who had ministered to them, who uh, loved them, and he was showing his tender heart and disposition toward them. When he was among them, he taught them about the gospel, 
and what pleases God. And now he is writing to them in this letter and he says, continue in what I taught you. Persevere in what you heard from me. From me. Hold fast to the word of life that I preached to you. Why? So that in that last day, when Christ returns, we will celebrate together. That we will together enter into his glory. This was Paul's joy. This was the desire of his heart for all who heard him preach the gospel. It was their salvation. That even here in this letter, as he was facing the possibility of, of death, during his imprisonment, as he wrote this letter, his joy was in Christ and in his assurance of Christ's return. That when the Lord Jesus will gather his church from every corner of the globe, raising us in immortal and imperishable bodies, he will then usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And the fruits and evidences of our labors here on this earth will be made evident to all. Paul is longing for that day. He is rejoicing in that coming day. 